Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Cybersecurity TLDR Show. This is your threat intelligence briefing for the week of June 26, 2022. Through, uh, through July 2nd, 2022. If you're joining us on YouTube, thanks for watching. Make sure to leave us a like on the video to show us that you liked it. Subscribe to the channel and hit the, be the bell icon so that you get notified when we release future content. If you're listening to us on podcasting platforms, remember we're on all podcasting platforms, but make sure to subscribe and also uh, leave us a review and let us know what, how you think that we're doing. And with that, let's go ahead and jump in. And also too, just before we start, this is the weekend for 4th of July if you're in the United States. So just wanna put a special shout out there and wish everybody a safe and enjoyable holiday with your family and loved ones and whatever else you do and wherever else that you're in the world, have a great weekend as well. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the articles now. So the very first article that we have is Russian-linked actors may be behind an explosion at a liquefied natural gas plant in Texas. Now, the explosion took place at the Freeport Liquefied Natural Gas, Freeport LNG liquefaction, liquefaction plant, rather, and export terminal on Texas Quintana Island. The June 8th incident will have a lasting impact on Freeport LNG's operations, the article says. Preliminary investigation suggested that the incident resulted from the overpressure and rupture of a segment of the LNG uh, transfer line, leading to a rapid flashing of LNG and the release and ignition of the natural gas vapor cloud. ICS malware like Trenton, which experts associated with Russian-linked APT group uh, Xenotime, has offensive capabilities to shut down industrial safety controls and cause extensive damages to industrial facilities. Now, if you've been watching this show for a while or you've been tuned into the news, you know that the ICS systems or the um, industrial control systems like the power plants, the power grid, and all this stuff that kind of keeps countries going, and specifically because I live here in the U.S., it's been all over the news, but the ability to impact any of those systems is very serious because we rely a lot on that, right? So power systems, if you're affecting the power grid, I mean, yes, we are trying to go to things like solar where it's more self-sufficient and you're not necessarily connected into these kind of gridding systems, but that doesn't change the fact that so many functions and industries and companies are connected into the power grid still today, which makes sense because we're not quite there yet with these, these other uh, methods or uh, energy sources. But if you can affect those, that's a serious issue. That can take down a country. That can take down an industry. That can take down a city, that can take down a state, that can take down all of these major areas or major um, sectors or parts of the world. And, you know, one thing that we've seen too is a lot of these systems tend to be around for a while. So when they do come out that they are vulnerable to something, right, it's a little bit harder to fix them because they rely a lot on legacy systems that have been around for a while. Or when they get released, they'll be around for a while. Now, if you haven't watched my interview that I did with Gabriel or Struggle Security, 
I did that uh, about a week ago, as of this recording at least. Go check that out because he actually works in cybersecurity securing some of these systems. And it's very, very interesting. And also make sure to check out his channel and connect with him on LinkedIn. But, you know, this is a growing concern area because we haven't traditionally focused a lot on securing these kind of systems, at least to the extent that we secure our normal networks and infrastructure like that. So this is a growing area and I definitely would recommend trying to learn a little bit about it, even if you're not going to go into that area. Now, the next article, Carnival fined $5 million by New York for cybersecurity violations. A New York state regulator, regulator on Friday fined cruise line operator Carnival Corps $5 million for significant, and it's in quotes, cybersecurity violations following four security breaches from 2019 to 2021 that exposed substantial amounts of sensitive cover, uh, customer da data. Now, New York's Department of Financial Services said that Carnival violated a state cybersecurity regulation by failing to use multi-factor authentication that would make it harder for wrongdoers to access its internal networks. It also said that Carnival failed to report one breach and conduct adequate cybersecurity awareness training for employees. Two of the breaches involved ransomware attacks, the regulator said. So a couple issues here, right? Multi-factor authentication. Come on, people. Now, it's very interesting, right? Because this is a best practice to use multi-factor authentication. We use it a lot in our personal uh, systems, our personal authentication to like Google and all these kind of things, right? But there's so many companies that are still not even doing it. And this is just, you know, another example of that. It is very interesting that in this charge though, they're starting to label things like multi-factor authentication. We don't always see stuff like that show up. And I think that's kind of a trend that we're starting to see now too is that these regulators and these prosecutors, they are going after specifics of cybersecurity. Like you're not doing your due diligence for doing this, or you didn't do this. So we're gonna come after you because that goes against best practice and all these kind of things, right? And so it's from a cybersecurity standpoint and a customer standpoint, it is very exciting to see that because that's gonna really, really force these companies and these executives to stop avoiding the issue and really try to focus on that and listen to their experts. So that, that's very interesting. Now, the other thing that we see here is they did not conduct adequate cybersecurity awareness training for employees. What? <laughs> like you didn't train your employees how to respond or like the basic things to do. Now I'm guessing because it says adequate, they probably got very, very basic training like, oh, you know, don't write down your password or Oh, you know, don't let somebody use your account maybe or, you know, whatever. But um, saying that they didn't conduct adequate means that it was very, very basic in my eyes, right? It could be zero, but I have to believe if it was zero, they would have said something in there about that. But you have to train your employees. This is one of the best practices in cybersecurity where, you know, historically there's been kind of this saying that your users are your biggest vulnerability or your weakest link in your organization as far as a cybersecurity standpoint. And, you know, it's not meant to be offensive or to kind of attack users, but it really is supposed to drive home the point that you have to train your users. You have to train your employees. You have to tell them what they can do, what they should not do, and all this basic stuff that applies to their job. And, you know, Carnival just threw that out the window and said, no, thanks. So 
I guess they're going to, um, they're going to see how that plays out. And then there was another article that followed up on it and said carnival cruises to pay 1.25 million, uh, fine for 2019 data breach. Carnival cruises has agreed to pay a 1.25 million fine, uh, dollar fine after being sued by 46 attorney generals for its handling of a 2019 data breach that leaked information from 180,000 carnival employees and customers across the country. Now, again, that was kind of, uh, uh, um, it, you know, they, they just, they failed on a lot of, a lot of situations, I guess. There's not really that much else to, you know, really, uh, really point out, right? That you get breached, you have to report it, you have to handle it correctly. And every company, you know, is susceptible to getting breached. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that you have to get kind of in your mind as far as cybersecurity, because it's not that you can't be breached. And I think that was kind of the traditional mindset. Like we can't get breached. We have so many controls, right? We're good to go. And then kind of as things have evolved, companies get breached all the time, right? You either have been breached and you don't know about it, or you're going to be breached, or you have been breached and you know about it, right? Everybody's going to get breached at some point because it's just very hard to keep up with all the things that you need to do in cybersecurity to remain secure. But it's how you respond to that, right? We've seen companies also that have tried to deflect uh, significant breaches, right? They come out in the news and they, they make a statement and they really try to deflect it. And then, you know, like a day later, if, and also, too, if you haven't seen my short on this, it's pretty entertaining how companies respond to this or CEOs respond to this, but um, uh, how they respond to getting breached. But, you know, then like a day passes, a couple of days pass, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we got breached, but we took care of it. We handled it. We did everything. And then they're like, then they really find out what's going on or they start getting caught. And they're like, okay, yes, we, we absolutely got hammered and we don't really know what happened. It's like, it's just this like timeline that seems to keep happening. So, you know, here's an example of a company getting caught, trying to, uh, trying to ignore their responsibilities. Next article, LockBit 3.0 introduces the first ransomware bug bounty. The ransomware operation launched in 2019 has since grown to be the most prolific ransomware operation, accounting for 40% of all known ransomware attacks in May 2022. 40%. That is a ton of those attacks. Over the weekend, the cybercrime uh, gang released a revamped ransomware as a service, RAAS, operation called LockBit 3.0. After beta testing for the past two months with a new version already using attacks, while it's unclear what technical changes were made to the encryptor, which is basically, if you're not familiar with what ransomware is, basically the idea is uh, you click on something or something happens, and then all of a sudden all your data starts getting encrypted, and then you get like a splash screen that says you have to pay this ransom, uh, usually in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, not usually in like dollars or anything like that. And then once you pay it, we'll give you the decryption key so you can then access your data again. Um, but uh, the ransom notes are no longer named restoremyfiles.txt. And again, because usually what happens is they get renamed too to indicate that they've been, uh, been encrypted and instead have moved to the naming format id.readme.txt. So um, that, that looks like it's kind of setting up 
again, that ransomware as a service, right? So I can go in and I can make my uh, John Good ransomware. So it'll be johngood.readme.txt. That seems like that's the idea here. With the release of LockBit 3.0, the operation has introduced the first bug bounty program offered by a ransomware gang, asking security researchers to submit bug reports in return for rewards ranging between $1,000 and $1 million. Whoa, that is a pretty high uh, high end there. And, um, you know, uh, this I don't think we've seen this before. I, I personally have not seen this before where, you know, a malicious group has tried to crowdsource their their vulnerability finding program, uh, their bug bounty program. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, from a, just a holistic kind of standpoint, right? A lot of companies are making their programs public and having people come and help them, researchers help them. And so why not? If you're an attacker, yeah, let's, let's get some help from the, 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 uh, the crowd here, the, the, uh, the population of evil people. LockBit is not only offering bounties for rewards on vulnerabilities, but it's also paying bounties for brilliant ideas and it's in quotes, on improving the ransomware operation and for doxing the affiliate program manager whose alias is LockBitSup. So if you can dox the, <laughs> you're gonna do- if you can dox the affiliate program manager for LockBit, right? Then, uh, <laughs> then you can also get paid uh, a nice little, uh, nice little ransom uh, or a <laughs> nice little bug bounty, I guess is what I should say. That's fun. Uh, so NIST releases new macOS security guidance for organizations. The guidance is derived from the macOS Security Compliance Project, MSCP, an open source effort aimed at creating uh, customized security baselines to meet the cybersecurity needs of various organizations. A collaboration between NIST, NASA, and the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA, and Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, LAN-L, the MSCP eliminates the need to issue new cybersecurity guidance for each macOS release. Instead, it uh, curates the macOS guidance and keeps it up to date. So they're trying to be more general and go uh, make this thing so it goes after kind of the core things that really affect a lot of other stuff, right? So to kind of um, minimize how many updates they have to do, right? This document and the MSCP GitHub site are intended for system administrators, security professionals, policy authors, privacy authors, and auditors who have responsibilities involving macOS security. Additionally, vendors of device management, security configuration assessment, and compliance tools that support macOS may find this document and the GitHub site to be helpful, NIST says. The project's GitHub page provides secure baselines and associated rules that can be used as practical, actionable recommendations for properly configuring and managing macOS endpoint device security. So something very interesting here is that traditionally, in a lot of organizations, right, as Mac started kind of making its way into more organizations, you know, they were not always kept as current or up to date or as secure as like a PC because a lot of times, you know, some of the historical kind of people, the people that have been around for a while, they thought of things like Mac OS and stuff is more secure, right? You're not allowing as much from the, uh, from the outside to install itself. Like it has to be from the app store and Mac OS is traditionally very locked down. And so there wasn't a lot of focus on that. And we've seen a lot of that shifting too, you know, as Mac OS has surfaced in more and more companies 
And you see Mac OS and a lot of the major tech companies too. And that probably was a big push for why, you know, there's more focus on it now, but um, we see it in all kinds of companies now. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing with this is there are these uh, CIS benchmarks, which have been kind of the standard as far as like group policies or ways to lock down different systems and things like that. And so it'll be interesting to see if this is some kind of collaboration with them or if this is something, you know, that's going to remain entirely different or if that will shape one of the two. So it's kind of interesting. And I guess we'll have to wait and see, you know, how that uh, kind of pans out. But that's a good one to definitely look at if you're interested. And something else that I want to mention too is in all of these episodes that I do for cybersecurity TLDR, uh, you can see if you're on YouTube or on podcasting platform, I put the link to the show notes in the uh, the description so that you can go to it. But it is on my website at johngood.com, and you can find the uh, you know the article or the the episode that you're looking for whenever you're watching it. So if it's this week, if it's next week, if it's the previous week, and so just keep that in mind. So whenever you're kind of watching that, uh, this this will be up. On my website. All right, next article. Contractor loses entire Japanese city's personal data in USB fail. A Japanese contractor working in the city of Amagaski near Osaka reportedly mislaid a USB drive containing personal data on the metropolis 460,000 residents. The unidentified man who was a contractor with the city working to disperse pandemic subsidies placed a drive containing all the records into his bag which he took with him on, on a night out on the town earlier this week. It's, it's unknown how good of a time the man had, okay, but he did reportedly end up passing out on the street. Eek. Japanese, Japanese news source uh, NHK reported, and the company who employed him is saying, elaborating on an incident report from the uh, Amagasaki city government, the company told the newspaper that upon waking, the contractor found his bag was missing. The incident report states the memory stick contained, contained names, date, uh, birth dates, addresses, tax details, banking information, social security numbers, or social security records, and all of it was very private data, potentially harmful if stolen. Officials said that the data on the USB stick was encrypted and offered apologies for harming the public's trust in their administration. All that worry came to naught, though. After searching the area with, uh, with police, the bag and the USB stick were found. And there's no attempt that anybody, uh, information on an attempt that anybody tried to access that information. So, you know, this is really important, right? In cybersecurity and in your organizations, you have to protect what kind of data is leaving your networks, how that data is protected. You know, in this case, the data was encrypted, apparently. And so that's, you know, obviously a really, really good step because you want to encrypt this kind of data, any kind of sensitive data, right? But, you know, I've been in organizations um, where things are very, very secure. I've also been in organizations where things are not so secure, right? And if you can just plug in a USB drive into your, you know, let's, let's say a major company, right? I'm not going to list a name of a major company, but let's just say you're at a major company and you don't have any kind of protection on the USB drives, and somebody can just stick a USB drive in there, take a bunch of data and run, you know, that's really, really bad, right? And we've seen incidents like that 
in the past. We'll see some in the future, I'm sure. And um, you have to protect data leaving. You have to protect data coming in, right? You have to just protect the integrity of your systems. And, you know, this seems like this was probably uh, an authorized storage of that information as far as like the encrypted drive and everything. But I don't understand why uh, he was, uh, this contractor was able to leave, you know, with this information, right? That doesn't seem like that's a good idea. And maybe that's a training issue. Maybe they're allowed to take the information with them and work from home. So I, I think they need to look at that because that's, that's probably not a good idea that you can allow your employees to take some of the sensitive data home with them. So good stuff, good stuff. Uh, next article, FBI stolen PII and deep fakes used to apply for remote tech jobs. And the FBI warns of increasing complaints that cyber criminals are using Americans' stolen PII information, which is personally identifiable information, you know, names, uh, addresses, phone numbers, things like that, and deep fakes to apply for remote work positions. Deep fakes are digital content like images, video, or audio, and sometimes generated using artificial intelligence or machine learning technologies, and they're difficult to distinguish from authentic materials. So we saw several weeks ago, there was an article that was talking about on LinkedIn that you know, there was these images being generated that were computer-generated images, so they're fake images, and they're being used for profiles and you know, to apply to things or to trick people, whatever. And this is kind of along those same lines. Now, the targeted remote jobs include positions in the tech field that would allow the malicious actors to gain access to the company and customer confidential information after being hired. The remote work or work-from-home positions identified in these reports include information technology and computer programming, database, and software-related job functions, the FBI said. Notably, some reported positions uh, include access to customer PII, financial data, corporate IT databases, and other proprietary information. So, you know, this really goes to the core of doing thorough background checks on your applicants, on the people that you're going to hire, making sure they are who they say they are, making sure that all the information adds up, least privilege, right? They shouldn't access anything more than they need to access in their job, separation of duty. They shouldn't be able to just do all this stuff on their own. And the thing that's interesting with this is this seems like something that, you know, well, I guess it's unclear too. Are they, um, are they going to go after companies and try to get more of that PI, that PII and then try to just continue this until they get to a certain company? Are they trying to get into these kind of positions and then take advantage of those companies that they get into? You know, where does it stop? And I think that's, you know, certainly an interesting question and something interesting to kind of focus on. But, um, you know, if you're a hiring manager, if you're in an HR department, you have to really do a good background check. You can't just kind of do this like checkbox thing where you don't do any kind of checks. And obviously from company to company, you know, the policies around hiring people and background checks and things like that, and even in different countries kind of varies. But, you know, you have to be willing to look into your employees before you hire them, especially for these highly sensitive kind of access jobs like IT and cybersecurity and programming and stuff. NATO to create cyber rapid response force, increase cyber defense aid to Ukraine. NATO announced plans Wednesday for a commitment to create a rapid response cyber force 
and to bolster military partnerships with civil society and industry to respond to cyber threats. Now, this specifically is really interesting because if you're not familiar with what NATO is, basically it's this alliance between different countries and um, basically what happens is, you know, sometimes this group will get involved or countries that are in this group. If somebody gets attacked from that group, these countries will get involved and basically, you know, they kind of try to help keep the peace around the world. That's kind of the, the gist of it, right? And so traditionally we've seen them uh, put forces into countries to help people out, like actual physical people, right? Like armies or something like that. And we haven't really seen that kind of, um, that kind of uh, cooperative group doing cyber things, right? And at least not at scale, right? And we have seen more recently that some countries and groups have started to give aid or give assistance in the form of cyber protection, cyber defense, things like that, cyber forces, right? And so I think that just kind of falls along with this and that, um, you know, cyber is a real thing. And some of these countries, you know, these smaller countries in a lot of cases, they don't have the resources to be resilient, right? If you're, uh, you know, any small country that you can, any small country that you can think of, right? If you're some really tiny country, are you going to be able to stand up against like a Russia, right? Who has a lot of resources to defend, you know, and attack your cyber assets? No, probably not. And so it's nice to see this kind of transition. I think this is a good adaptation and uh, evolving thing. And, you know, kudos to them for creating this kind of force. I think that's going to, it's certainly going to evolve over time, but it's good to see. And then it says, we are confronted by cyberspace and hybrid and other asymmetric threats and by the malicious use of emerging and disruptive technologies, the declaration said. We face systemic competition from those, including the People's Republic of China, who challenge our interests, security, and values, and they seek to undermine the rules-based international order. So again, they're kind of the peacekeeper and they're just, they're kind of adding a cyber component to them, right? So really interesting. Uh, cyber pirates prowling ship controls threaten another big shock. So in 29, uh, February 2019, a large container ship sailing for New York identified a cyber intrusion on board that startled the U.S. Coast Guard through the malware attack uh, though the malware attack never controlled the vessel's movements, authorities concluded that weak defenses exposed critical functions to significant vulnerabilities. So, you know, this is really interesting because think about the uh, cars, right? Like we've seen in like Teslas and some of these other kind of cars where people have created these proof of concepts where they can actually control what the car does, right? Because it's kind of a smart car. Well, I mean, ships in a sense are kind of the same thing, right? They are becoming smarter. They have all this technology on board. They are run by like electronics and things like that. And so if you can find out how to do that and get into those systems and control them, you know, that's the same idea, but at mass scale, right? Because, you know, if you do this to a cruise liner, right? Or some big Navy ship, that's pretty serious, right? And, um, you know, again, these whole kind of systems and things like that and protecting them, figuring out these kind of vulnerabilities and reporting them or helping get them corrected is a really emerging uh, area of cybersecurity and 
you know, if you're, if you're interested in that kind of thing and you want to find that cutting edge kind of area of cybersecurity, this is a really good spot for you to go to. So any kind of embedded systems, anything like that is really, uh, really on the rise as far as needing cybersecurity. Let's see here. All right. So House passes ICS cybersecurity training bill. And this kind of follows on to what I was just saying, right, about uh, ICS systems earlier. But the bill introduced in May by uh, Representative Eric Swalwell, a Democrat out of California. It was approved by the House last week. Swalwell said that the goal of the legislation is to help strengthen the U.S. cybersecurity's protection in light of Russian cyber threats. Specifically, the Industrial Control System Cybersecurity Training Act would amend the Homeland Security Act of 2002 to authorize the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, so CISA, to establish a cybersecurity training initiative focusing on industrial control systems, ICS. The bill aims to provide the IT workforce with free ICS security training. This includes virtual and in-person training and courses that would be available at different skill levels to help participants develop and strengthen their skills. This course will cover ICS cyber defense strategies, and they will be available to both government, government agencies and private sector entities. Now, uh, this is really interesting because if you, if you haven't watched my interview that I did with Gabriel and Struggle Security, go check it out because we talk a lot about this. But, you know, some of the training that has existed, it really you know, it's been expensive or there hasn't been a ton of it that is available to a lot of people, right? And it's kind of a niche area. So um, not everybody will end up working on these kind of systems. But, you know, the idea of creating more training that is specifically targeted at these kind of systems just shows the growing importance on these ICS systems, these industrial control systems. So again, that's like power grids and things like that. And, uh you know, it's good to see this kind of area evolving because I think, again, that kind of area has been neglected, at least from a training standpoint, for a while, right? See a lot of kind of uh, legacy systems, operating systems, things, operating systems, things like that. And it's good to see some training come out because especially too, one thing that comes to mind is if a lot of technology changes, right, and you are fresh out of school, you got that newest technology most likely, right? Like you got training in that. But what about the old stuff? You probably don't know how the old stuff works. I mean, depending on how old you are, you might not even know what Windows XP is, right? I mean, that could be an issue, right? Uh, Especially in like an ICS system. Maybe they have XP, maybe they have Windows uh, 2000 or something, right? Those are different. Those are very different animals than uh, Windows 11, Server 2016, 2019, you know, all these newer versions they're different. <laughs> and uh, so I think it's good if they can get some training that is very specific to that industry and get people, you know, more, um, more focused training on those areas so they can really specialize in that kind of area. So I definitely like to see that. And that's absolutely, you know, a good thing, I think. So Uh, That is it for this week. Again, this was Cybersecurity TLDR. This is your Threat Intel briefing for uh, June 26, 2022 through uh, July 2nd, 2022. Again, this is the beginning of the weekend for uh, 4th of July if you're in the U.S. 
So, you know, happy holidays. If you're not in the U.S., you know, I hope you have a great weekend as well and stay safe either way. And with that, I want to thank you for joining me. If you're on YouTube, make sure to like this video and subscribe. And also hit that bell icon so you get uh, notifications for future content. If you're listening on podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And until next time, I will see you later.